Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Well, the new year is beginning much as it ended, shrouded in deadly conflict. Intense bombardment, restrictions on movement, fuel shortages, and interrupted communications make it impossible. It's estimated that more than 23,000 Palestinians in Gaza and 1,200 Israelis have been killed in the Israel-Hamas war. Meanwhile, Russia has escalated missile and drone strikes on Ukraine. Sounded across Ukraine during another intense night of Russian bombardments. Explosions and smoke lit. I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions, even to things as devastating as the damage caused by war. Not long ago, What on Earth listener Barbara Wheeler emailed us, and she asks, What damage the wars in Ukraine and Gaza are having on the planet and climate change, notwithstanding the horrible cost to human lives? It's a good question, Barbara. So for our first story today, we went looking for the answer and for some ideas about what ending war could mean for the climate. Nita Crawford is a professor at Oxford University and the co-founder of the Costs of War Project. Nita, welcome to What on Earth? Thank you for having me. Let's start with the Israel-Hamas war. What can you tell us about the environmental toll so far? Well, you began with the human toll, which has enormous implications for the, the people there and leads to its own environmental degradation. But Uh, you can divide it into two kinds of impacts. One is direct and immediate, the destruction of the built environment and including water treatment facilities and um, housing leads to people being displaced and pollution not being dealt with in the immediate moments. And then in the long run, there is the pulverization of cement that it's aerosolized and people are breathing this in which causes for them and other creatures difficulty with their hearts and lungs and then in addition there's been about 281,000 metric tons of CO2 equivalent emissions in just the first 60 days of the war that's been estimated by uh, Patrick Bigger and Ben Neemark here in the UK. The, the war, of course, is only the latest in this long, decades-long conflict. What would it take and how long would it take to fix all of the da- environmental damage that, that has accumulated over the years? Well, there's two ways to fix the damage. Uh, first of all, to, to halt it immediately and then um, engage in reforestation and remediation of the natural environment. That also means we have to help the humans who've been displaced by the wars because when they are displaced are putting a burden that is unaccustomed or uh, in fact unusual for the region. 
and um, that stresses the natural environment. So we need to put people back in homes in the, and give them the infrastructure so that the water is treated, there's access to food so that they don't have to be burning uh, diesel for electricity. So really what we have to do is take care of the people and um, then also the environment at the same time. That sounds like something that would take years and years and billions of dollars. Right. Well, the, the, the way that we you know, saw reconstruction after World War II is that it took uh, a decade in Europe and a, a, almost a decade in Japan for reconstruction. Now, in those days, the reconstruction was done with um, you know, cement, concrete, which is a high greenhouse gas emitter. And reconstruction today may take as long, but it doesn't have to be as greenhouse gas intensive. And so we have options as an international community trying to assist recovering nations with a sort of greener rebuilding. You know, better that there not be war, but if there is war, then we can hope that we can provide people with alternative ways of producing electricity and transportation that's more efficient and use wars as an opportunity, as the Ukrainians have done, to accelerate the greening of their infrastructure. Okay, yeah, let's turn to the, to the war between Russia and Ukraine. It's, it's reaching the two-year mark. What kind of environmental legacy is that conflict leaving? Well, when Russia invaded Ukraine, in particular Crimea in 2014, they set up a, a long-term occupation intending to make Crimea part of Russia. And so they, they built a highway there for which they destroyed 110,000 trees. And overall in the conflict, the Russians have destroyed lots of forest. Then the Ukrainians are using the forests for defensive purposes and also um, for fuel when they lose electricity or access to other forms of heating in the winter. So destruction of the forest is important to, to recognize there. The Russians are occupying 10 national parks. They've, of course, destroyed a huge dam which flooded a large area and then had um, not only an impact on farmland but displaced many people. And again, the the problems with displacement of people are then the extra burden on an environment where there's a lack of infrastructure. And then in addition to that, the, the entire war is expected to have caused emissions or will cause emissions of about 150 million metric tons CO2 over 18 months. And then there'll be, of course, the emissions for reconstruction. Okay, aside from all of that destruction, tell me how armed forces in and of themselves contribute to climate change. I'm not talking about being engaged in conflict per se, but but the actual creation, maintenance activity of armed forces. Well, militaries emit greenhouse gases uh, directly through their operations and exercises and their installations. Most of the emissions, for instance, of the United States military are operational. You know, flying aircraft, which are the greater portion of U.S. military emissions, but also diesel for tanks and trucks. And these emissions, of course, stay in the atmosphere like every other form of emission. And then the installation electricity 
can be provided sometimes by coal or other forms of energy like natural gas. And that's a contributor to the emissions profile of a military. And then the aircraft themselves, the the missiles, the tanks, the uh, non-tactical vehicles, just cars that are used on bases are all produced by military industrial facilities. And those emissions are as high as the military's own emissions in any one year in the U.S. So, for instance, in um, 2022, U.S. direct emissions from installations and from operations was reported by the U.S. DOD to be 48 million metric tons CO2 equivalent, which is about the same emission level as the entire country of Sweden. The, the obvious solution would be to end all wars, to have world peace. Let, let's, so let's dream a little. I mean, I know that isn't in the cards. Um, what difference, though, might demilitarization make when it comes to climate change? First of all, we can live in a more peaceful world. War is a choice. We should be able to defend ourselves against aggressors, but uh, we can try to avoid war many different ways and build up institutions for peace. But there is low-hanging fruit in terms of decreasing the impact of war and military mobilization. For instance, in the United States, the U.S. military itself says it has 20% excess capacity at bases. And those bases themselves could be converted, in some instances, to uh, reforested land. Or we could see um, around naval bases the recovery of ports around there so that it's less damaged. But more than that, every military in the world could look at uh, its legacy bases and doctrines. There are missions and activities which are essentially done because they were done before. For instance, the United States and other countries have been patrolling the Persian Gulf. Before the U.S., it was the British to ensure access to oil. Now, there's a decreasing use of Persian Gulf oil in the world. And as the world economies transition to renewables and other fuels, we don't have to have tens of thousands of troops in perpetuity, either on bases in the Persian Gulf and the Middle East, or on aircraft carriers and other surface ships patrolling, themselves using fossil fuel to protect access to fuel that we shouldn't be burning and, in fact, are decreasingly using, decreasingly reliant upon. makes me wonder, though, um, if, if, that, if that does become the case, that there's really little reason to patrol the Persian Gulf because they're, they're moving to renewables, whether we have new forms of conflict break out over the critical minerals <laughs> that countries need right. to... Yeah, I, yeah. yeah, that's a good question. And That's a concern, yes, but we have the capacity to have diplomatic, political, and trade agreements where we don't fight over these resources. We buy it when we need it. We we are living in uncertain times, and for many countries, national security trumps the climate crisis. 
exporting weapons is profitable. So what incentive do you think countries have to actually do the, even the low-hanging fruit to demilitarize? Well, national security is, a, first of all, about security. And floods, too much heat, too little water. These are harms that affect everyone in the world. And we simply don't have the luxury of thinking about something which is a possible conflict, trumping something in terms of our attention that is certain. Climate change is certain. Many of these conflicts that we prepare for are possible or they're risks, which we can diminish by our own actions. And so I think that reasonable people would say, well, you you deal with the thing you know is coming and then prepare for these lower probability events. What we have to do is realize that the thing that is certain, climate change and crisis in biodiversity, is our top priority. And it is the thing that we should be focused on. Nita Crawford, a lot to think about. Thank you so much for speaking with me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, can you, um, he needs some sound check. Oh, okay. Say, what's the favorite thing you did over your holidays? Um, I, we did a PowerPoint presentation night with my friends. <laughs> you are such a geek. No. <laughs> <laughs> what did you PowerPoint about? It was all about our first semesters at uni. And so we, we all gave like presentations on um, everything that went down, school, outside, friends, whatever, any any gossip, any tea, everything. So, And then we all had, like, cookies. It was hilarious. <laughs> That's none other than our youth climate action columnist, Aishwarya Patur. She's back at school at UBC this month after a winter break back home in Waterloo. And I wondered, beyond what she did over the holidays, what are her goals for her second term of university? Well, after I went back, I realized how much I've missed Vancouver. (laughs) Ah, so you Um, do belong here. Yeah, um, especially the view, like (laughs) the beautiful mountains, because we don't have that in Ontario. And so I think this semester, I really, really want to be able to see as much as possible in Vancouver and British Columbia. Me and my friends are hoping that this reading break, we could go up and hike some mountains. That's the goal. Yeah, that's a good goal. And I can give you some tips on where to go hiking, because I know you're not that familiar with the area just yet. Um, that is definitely something for you to look forward to in 2024. But but today, you've actually brought us three youth campaigns that you ha- are excited about this year. So let's get started on them. Your first climate action story is one that we've actually been watching too. A few weeks ago, the Federal Court of Appeal ruled that 15 young people who are trying to sue the federal government for inaction on the climate crisis can actually have their case heard in court. And that, that's a big step. So you actually know one of the litigants involved. So tell me about her. Yeah, so I've actually worked with Lauren Wright back when I was working with Climate Strike Canada. So that was back in grade 10 and grade 11. And both of us are actually in our first year of university now. So it's kind of like a full circle moment. And it was so nice to chat with her yesterday. I think one thing that really stuck with me is that she said that when she signed up for this lawsuit, she knew that she was going to have to spend the next 10 years of her life on this. Yeah, and that's the way it's looking. I mean, what did she tell you about how she felt 
when she heard the federal court of appeal ruling that the case will actually be going forward? Yeah, she said something that was really interesting and actually resonated with me as an organizer and activist, right? She said that people often expect her to be super ecstatic and super happy. And she says, obviously, she was happy, but she says that the more overwhelming feeling was a sense of relief because for her, this has been something that I think they filed back in uh, 2019, October of 2019 in Vancouver. And so for their lawsuit to be able to go forward and hopefully she hopes for a hearing in 2025, that's the goal. To her, it's just relief and a sense of knowing that, okay, hopefully this can go forward. For her, she saw this case as a way for her voice to be heard because she said that she's tried everything before. She has been an organizer, she's done strikes, and to her she saw legislation as one of the most powerful ways to make change. We are one of the first generations to face the impacts of climate change, but we are most definitely the last to make a difference about it. And so it is because of this unique positionality that she is in that she decided to take on this case. This isn't the only youth climate lawsuit. There's others in Canada. There's others around the world. Generally speaking, what do you think they can accomplish? I think that lawsuits with regards to climate change are so incredibly important because it's on national news, it's on international news, it's seen as something that's finally taken seriously, quote unquote. And so it's so important to have these lawsuits because A, they're showing people of all ages because lawsuits are not just something that, you know, a certain population or group of people can look at, but there's something that young people can look at. There's something that people of all ages will follow along with. And so, yeah, I think they give them a sense of platform that other sorts of avenues don't. So youth-led legal action is the first thing you're hopeful about. What's your second pick for 2024? Yeah. So I had so many friends go to COP28, which just finished off in December. But you know what's the craziest thing? All of these friends are already prepping for COP29. (laughs) Not taking a break? No. Okay. Well, hopefully they're resting a little, but well, that's the life (laughs) that activists live and that we have to live. But um, for a friend of mine, her name is Aishka Najib. She's from Dubai and she's from Yunga, which is like the youth organization of the United Nations. And she represented the woman and gender constituency at COP28. She was telling me about all these amazing campaigns that they pushed for at COP28 that they spoke to the secretariat about that actually got implemented. And she told me about certain words that were finally in the texts um, and agendas at COP28 within their policies and that were all done because of youth. And she said something that really stuck with me. Every time I talk to fellow organizers, things stick with me because it's (laughs) such a wonderful community. But um, she told me about how young people are often in those spaces. Young people are often seen as these like, you know, angry youth activists who are out there protesting, chanting slogans. And she said, we're not just people who are doing actions. We are the policymakers because They would be out there till 12 a.m. at the negotiation rooms and then be awake till 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. working on texts, Mm. looking at loopholes, looking at things that they can go and talk to the secretariat about the next day so that they can have this implemented within the texts. 
And these are young people. These are all people who are either in high school, in university. She's in her final year of university and she's doing all of this work, right? And there's just people from across the world. There were people from frontline communities and they were all doing this heavy, burdened work. And they told me that they had meetings leading up to COP28 where they self-taught themselves on the legal language of the United Nations, so that when they went into COP28 or when they went into these spaces, they knew exactly what they were talking that about. That is an amazing amount of dedication. Yeah. So, well, then, in that sense, what are their priorities for the next UN conference in Azerbaijan? Yeah. So, Aishka pointed out three very clear priorities. Number one was it's called conflict of interest. So Conflict of Interest was a campaign that they actually were approved by the Secretariat at COP28, which they hope to also see at COP29. So it's when delegates walk in to the conference. There will be like a booth where I guess Aishka and her fellow colleagues were at, and they gave out stickers that said, not sponsored by fossil fuels. Uh. And so every single delegate that was not sponsored by fossil fuels had that sticker. And so some delegates would refuse to take the sticker. And so then they immediately knew, well, this person is clearly taking some money from fossil fuels or is clearly coming from a fossil fuel company. It was amazing to me to hear about this. I actually spoke to her today at 8 a.m. because she's in Dubai. So yeah. it's all very fresh in my mind right now. But she showed me the stickers as well. And she showed me how it looked on the badges. And that's what they hope to continue on at uh, COP29. And then a second one was to continue having fossil fuels under negotiation. COP28 was the first time that the word fossil fuels was integrated within their text, right. the official text, mm -hmm. which is crazy uh, to think about. Yeah, it's a lot of attention paid to that yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so um, they hope to still have it under negotiations. And youth are pushing for the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, right. uh, which 12 countries have signed so far. And then the third one was on funding gaps, actually, because COP29 at Azerbaijan is on climate finance. It's all about finance. And so they hope to see more money being put into loss and damage, into mitigation and adaptation and looking at where exactly all of this money goes. And she said they're probably going to meet up every single month in the lead up to COP29 to talk about their action points, to talk about what wow. every group is doing. Yeah, and it's already started. It's just January. Now, listen, I want to come into this last point is you grew up in Waterloo mm -hmm. and you're fairly new to Vancouver, although mm -hmm. you've already fallen in love with mm -hmm. it, which doesn't surprise me. <laughs> is there a local group working on climate action that got you fired up? Yes, absolutely. And I'm so excited to talk about them. It's called Climate Recentered, and uh, they're based in Surrey. And a few of my very close activist and organizing friends actually work for Climate Recentered. And the whole point of Climate Recentered is to refocus the narrative for activism and organizing on love and care. And so a lot of the work they do is based off of mutual aid. A lot of the work that they do is just grounding ourselves and reminding ourselves why we started this work in the first place. It sounds kind of obvious, though, it, that you would you would be taking care of yourself. Is that not true? Not necessarily. Okay. I think when you get involved in activism, and actually, not I think, I know this because I've talked to all of my activist friends are very, this is something we've had a lot of chats about. When you get involved in activism and when you're so passionate about something, you kind of, like I used to, in grade 10, I used to spend 30 hours a week 
an activism. Outside of school. Outside of school, yeah. And so it, I, I burned out, I did. Um, but that was the sort of life I was living because I was so passionate about this work and I really wanted to make a difference. But within that passion, you sometimes forget to take care of yourself because you, you, you're you doing this work out of care for the planet. You're doing this work out of care for people. But um, care for yourself does get lost. And we have to remember that rest is resistance. Oh, that's an interesting concept, yeah. right? And so that's what this group does. Exactly. It, it, you still do the work, but you're making sure that you're okay too? Yes. And you're taking care of each other as a community. Well, I can tell you that if you do follow through on your plans to get out for hikes and get in the mountains, that will certainly help with your wellness. It's a wonderful bit of medicine that you have right nearby. Um, I know I'm going to be talking to you again soon, but I'm going to wish you Happy New Year again. And thank you, Aishwarya Patur. Until next time. Thank you so much. And we've got some time now for other climate stories making news this week. Norway could become the first country in the world to mine its ocean floor for minerals needed in the transition away from fossil fuels. It's passed legislation to allow the controversial practice within territorial waters. The government says it will carry out environmental studies before issuing any licenses. Marine scientists say deep-sea mining could be devastating for sea life, and nations are still debating whether to allow mining in international waters. Canada is on record as opposing the practice. Extreme weather in 2023 has meant insurance costs were more than $3 billion in Canada for the second year in a row. Wildfires, storms and flooding caused the highest insured payouts for damage. The Insurance Bureau of Canada is calling for a national program for flood insurance as more people find private insurance either impossible or just too expensive to purchase. And there's another area of growth, but in a good way. The International Energy Agency reports that renewable energy grew by 50% last year. It's actually the 22nd year in a row that the growth in renewable capacity has set a new record, according to the IEA's figures. And it says the pace of growth offers a real chance of tripling capacity by the end of the decade. That was a promise agreed to by nations at COP28 in December. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Laura Lynch, and this is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. People sometimes like to bet big on technology when it comes to climate change, and some technologies are more established than others. So What on Earth producer Molly Siegel is going to be sussing out just how effective these things are in fixing the climate crisis, starting today and in upcoming episodes. Hi, Molly. Hello, Laura. Okay, I want to start by asking you what will seem like a totally random trivia question but I promise it will make sense. Okay. <laughs> Let's go have at it. Okay. 
So, when do you think the first patent was issued for using carbon dioxide to cure concrete? Take a guess. Oh, I didn't realize I was going to be on a quiz show today. I hope there's a prize. Um, okay, I've heard of the idea before,、um, and I know that there is a Canadian company that's removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and into concrete. So that makes me guess the patent isn't too old. Maybe what a couple of decades.、Mm, fair guess, but it's incorrect. The first patent that used carbon dioxide to cure concrete was issued in the late 1800s. Say what? <laughs> <laughs> That's Alex Tavasoli. She's a professor at the University of British Columbia, and she told me about this patent, which was issued in 1874 in Wisconsin. They found that it made harder concrete if you cured it with carbon dioxide. And I'm sharing this because right now there's a renewed interest in technology that can extract carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So what's old is new again, but this time for the climate. So today, Laura, we're asking: Can carbon dioxide removal help fix the climate crisis? Alex is one of three people I'm going to introduce you to. Each one of them has different ideas about these technologies, how they could be used, who should pay, and who should benefit. Carbon dioxide removal takes many forms, from big industrial plants to our oceans. But just to be clear, Molly, we're not talking about carbon capture, utilization, and storage (CCUS). That's something that we've talked about before, but not this time. Yeah, that's correct. We've talked about that before, as you say.、Um, this happens directly at the source of pollution to, in theory, prevent greenhouse gases from entering the atmosphere in the first place. And many critics are skeptical of this because the captured carbon is often used to extract more oil and gas, which of course emits more greenhouse. Gas when it's burned,、um, but today, Laura, we're going to set all of that aside because I want to talk about a different type of technology. Things that remove carbon from the atmosphere. Yeah. So, when scientists talk about how the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has been growing since the industrial revolution, that CO two remains even if we stopped emitting today. And we can't see it, but we feel the effects in our lives, most obviously in the weather. Yeah, I called someone up to help make a little more sense of this idea to make it less abstract. My name is David Ho. I'm a professor at University of Hawaii at Manoa, and I'm also a co-founder and director of science at Seaworthy. It's a nonprofit trying to develop open source. Tools to verify ocean-based carbon dioxide removal. Quick sidebar: He was actually one of dozens of expert reviewers on Elon Musk's X Prize for carbon removal, which awards tens of millions of dollars to carbon removal projects. That means he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so David thinks of carbon dioxide removal as a time machine. For for this example, bear with me here. We will take a look at the largest direct air capture plant in the world, called Climeworks Orca, and it's in Iceland. Which over the course of a year, this plant removes four thousand tons of CO two. Removing four thousand tons compared to current emissions, that's a time machine that takes us back three seconds. That's the atmosphere you had three seconds ago. If you had four thousand. Tons less CO two. So 
if it takes a year to remove 4,000 tons, and that takes you back three seconds, that's really not doing a lot. That's it? That three seconds? That's even less than a proverbial drop in a bucket. Yeah, and this is the biggest plant that's that's out there right now. And I have to admit, I you know, I was already somewhat skeptical of the technology. That number makes me even more skeptical. I, I mean, that is kind of the point that David is making. To try and scale up technologies like direct air capture right now while we're still burning fossil fuels. He says that it just doesn't add up. Carbon dioxide removal only becomes an effective time machine, to use his analogy, once we've more or less decarbonized our world. Right. We have to stop pouring more CO2 into the atmosphere in order to make a dent on what's already there. Yes. Yeah. But David is still a proponent of this technology. He thinks we need much more money looking at ways to remove even more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. We need to figure out which methods actually work not just removing the carbon, but actually storing it long term, monitoring, reporting and verification of carbon dioxide that's removed and stored actually tells you if this technology is doing what it promises. And then there are some other considerations. Which will not harm ecosystems? Which ones don't use up too much land? And which ones are the most cost effective? We should absolutely be researching that because it's going to take a decade or more to figure this out. At some point, we should have this tool, if not for ourselves, for future generations. But is there some kind of method that he's looking at then? Yeah, it's called ocean alkalinity enhancement. Okay. (laughs) As usual, it sounds like um, a bit of science magic, and that's a new one for me. Yeah, it involves the ocean and the carbon cycle, and according to David... Yeah, it's almost it's almost like magic. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but there are different types of carbon in the ocean. There are the living things like the whales and the plankton, but then there's also something called inorganic carbon, and it takes two forms, bicarbonate, so baking soda is an example, and then something called carbonate. So shells are made of calcium carbonate, for example. And then there is dissolved carbon. And that's the type that the ocean can only hold so much of compared to how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere. And they always have to be in equilibrium. What alkalinity does is it shifts dissolved CO2 to being bicarbonate and carbonate. So it just changes the form of it. So then the ocean can take up more CO2 from the atmosphere. But if I'm understanding this and you want to keep that equilibrium, what do you actually end up putting in the water? Okay, so there's some types of rocks that can do this and scientists are looking at that. But there's also certain chemicals like those that are found in household products like Drano. Drano? (laughs) Um, That seems to me so counterintuitive. I think of Drano as entirely corrosive, but you're saying it could be a climate solution if it ends up in the ocean? Well, I teased David about that. So if our listeners are like declogging their plumbing in their bathrooms and sinks at home, that could be a climate solution. They should get some carbon credits. (laughs) I'm not suggesting that seriously. Yeah, okay, but in all seriousness, Laura, there were protests over a proposed trial of this method in the UK. 
And there is so much more research needed to see whether or not something like this is even safe for the environment and how well it actually works. But what about here in Canada? Actually, ocean alkalinity is one of the technologies being researched here, but it's by far not the only one. Uh, My name is Naeem Merchant. I'm the executive director of Carbon Removal Canada. Naeem wants the Canadian government to start investing big in these kind of technologies. Carbon Removal Canada came out with a report arguing that all of this has huge economic potential for Canada. And so that means building up an entirely new industry to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. So it's an entirely new sector, that a climate sector that needs to be built in response to climate change. And so we think from our report and the analysis that we've done that this can create almost 90,000 permanent jobs by 2050. That is a huge projection. Yeah, it, it is. But, you know, there is a, a little hint of government support forthcoming in an investment tax credit. This will be for large direct air capture plants, which draw down CO2 from the atmosphere. So like that one in Iceland that I mentioned earlier, things like that. And the tax credit would cover 60% of the capital costs on these new direct air capture facilities. I think that's going to be attractive to a lot of companies that are interested in starting direct air capture projects in Canada, especially in Western Canada, where there's a lot of other kind of supportive regulations and a skilled workforce. He says Western Canada has the right geology to store a large amount of carbon underground. Carbon Removal Canada is asking the federal government to put forward a national challenge, awarding grants to new and innovative projects. But why does he think taxpayers should be covering the costs? Why shouldn't industry do it? Well, he argues that the federal government should invest in this now to bring costs down as the industry expands. Ultimately, he wants Ottawa to include carbon dioxide removal as a way for polluters to comply with the carbon tax, for example. But right now... So really, at this point, the carbon removal industry has been really dependent on voluntary purchases from the likes of Shopify, Microsoft, BMO. The voluntary market has played this really important catalytic role to help get emerging new technologies off the ground in the absence of the policies and regulations that would help support the carbon removal industry. That sounds like he's saying we should be using CO2 removal now. And then I think about David Ho's time machine analogy. It wouldn't really be able to tackle the existing carbon dioxide since we're still pumping so much more of it into the atmosphere all the time. No, it wouldn't. Here's David Ho. The biggest benefit right now of carbon dioxide removal is greenwashing. If companies are deploying carbon dioxide removal right now, that's probably the strongest reason for doing it. And I think that's my greatest fear, right, is that I think the moral hazard thing is real. So we've talked about the risks. We've talked about carbon markets, ocean alkalinity, direct air capture. And don't forget the Drano and the time machines. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Most important parts. But both the example of, let's say, working with the ocean or a giant direct air capture plant, I mean, these are on a very large scale. I want to bring Alex Tavasoli back in. She's the assistant professor at the University of British Columbia, who we heard from earlier. And she says it's actually more effective to take CO2 out of the atmosphere where it's most heavily concentrated. If you think about a bowl of M&Ms where there are 50 brown M&Ms and two orange M&Ms, it's going to take you a lot of time to find an orange M&M than it would if there was half orange M&Ms and half brown M&Ms. 
And in the same way, if they are less carbon dioxide molecules in the air, it's going to take you more energy to separate them out. And so in urban areas, because there is so much human activity and so much driving, there's a huge amount of carbon dioxide emissions. So she says to do this, you may need to look at this on a smaller scale. And she says one of the places we could focus is in cities. For example, she says you could pair, let's say, smaller scale direct air capture units with ventilation that comes in buildings or the ventilation in tunnels on roads. And so by looking for those pockets where the CO2 concentration is elevated, we could potentially design systems that use less energy and therefore cost less money to capture that carbon dioxide. Now that's interesting. But are there other benefits of having carbon dioxide removal throughout cities instead of these big plants in remote areas? Well, Alex thinks there is. I mean, she says that there could be community ownership and that maybe this will shift these technologies away from any ties to, let's say, the fossil fuel industry. Um, She's also researching how all of the CO2 you extract from the atmosphere could be used to make stuff that we need in a climate-friendly world, to make products like battery casings or adhesives for solar panels, for example, or maybe even concrete. (laughs) What's old is new again. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) We'll have to stay tuned to her research. So for now, though, would you say that carbon removal technologies could actually help solve the climate crisis? I asked Alex, Naeem, and David this question. And all of them were very clear that the work of cutting emissions at the source has to happen immediately. That's not what carbon removal does. But once we do that, carbon dioxide removal can help bring the temperature back down by taking out legacy emissions. Laura, the stakes are high for this, though, because the more we overshoot our 1.5 degree target, the more permanent the damage will be which will make these technologies less effective. Really interesting, Molly. Thank you. You're welcome. On last week's show, we introduced you to a couple of cookbooks to help you eat better for yourself and the planet. One of them is called Perfectly Good Food, a totally achievable zero-waste approach to home cooking. And it's written by sisters Margaret and Irene Lee. And Irene says family is a big inspiration. Zero-waste cooking is not a new idea. Even though it's like very hip and like trendy now, like that's what our grandmothers would have just called cooking. (laughs) Um, You don't want to waste anything because you don't have unlimited resources to spend on raw materials. That's certainly something that happened in my household growing up uh, with my parents' generation. And that idea of frugal living resonated with our listeners. We had a couple of emails about what people have learned from their grandmothers. Anna Weiler wrote in to say, My maternal grandmother and her family came to Canada during World War II as refugees. Her husband died soon after. So there she was, a single mother from another country with three children. The Canadian government tried unsuccessfully to deport her back home to her home country, Estonia, which then became part of the USSR. She had to learn very quickly how to make something from nothing. I admired her for her chutzpah and learned to cook and live as she did. Thanks, Anna. And here's one from Charlene Trelevin. Not wasting things and not shopping nor spending unnecessarily is something we can easily teach our children and grandchildren. 
I'm very proud of my beautiful granddaughters who are the most tight-fisted people I know. <laughs> I know this happened because I had a grandmother who steered her family through the depression on the prairies and through good management had her family prosper and eventually become quite rich. From one grandmother to the next, we're always glad to get your emails. You can write in about anything you hear on the show, earth at cbc.ca. So Canada isn't the only country where the future of oil and gas projects can spark fierce political debate. I want you to listen to an exchange between Green Party MP Caroline Lucas and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in the United Kingdom over the future of a North Sea oil field project called Rosebank. The Prime Minister has previously declared, and I quote, my daughter is the climate change champion in our house. I wonder if he's asked her what she thinks about Rosebank, the biggest undeveloped oil field in the North Sea, which would blow climate targets, create more emissions than 28 of the world's poorest countries combined, involve the obscene transfer of £4 billion of taxpayers' money to a Norwegian energy firm, Equinor, and do nothing for energy security since the vast majority of the oil will be exported. If he gives it the green light, will he be able to look his daughter in the eye and honestly say that he has done everything in his power to give her and all other young people a livable future. Mr Speaker, as the Independent Committee for Climate Change has acknowledged, we will need fossil fuels for the next few decades as we transition to a greener future. And during that period, it makes absolutely no sense to not invest in the resources we have here at home, to import foreign fossil fuels not create jobs here and import them at twice the carbon emissions as our local resources. It is an economically illiterate policy, Mr. Speaker. Okay, since that back and forth, the Rosebank project has been approved. But the debate over fossil fuels and climate has become even more intense. And that's because the government is pushing a bill aimed at potentially accelerating approvals of even more North Sea licenses. Supporters say it will help the UK's energy security, but many aren't buying it, even within government ranks. Former Tory Energy Minister Chris Skidmore quit in opposition to the bill, and he's not the only Conservative critic. What this bill does do is reinforce that unfortunate perception about the UK rowing back from climate action. I mean, just a few weeks ago at COP28, uh, the, the 28th UN Climate Conference, uh, the, the UK government signed up to transition away from fossil fuels. This bill is about doubling down on granting more oil and gas production licenses. That is Alex Sharma, who is a Conservative MP. He was also the president of COP26 in Glasgow, and he was speaking with the BBC just a few days ago. So, phew! <laughs> Tessa Khan, it's a wild ride. Are you holding on? Yeah, barely. It has it has been a wild ride these last few months, that's for sure. Um, could you just introduce yourself for our listeners? 
Certainly, I'm Tessa Khan. I'm the executive director of a group called Uplift in the UK that campaigns for a fossil fuel free future. And I'm a climate change lawyer. And welcome to What on Earth. Now, there is a lot going on here with the approved development and the proposed legislation. But before we get into the details, let's talk about the big picture. What is at stake as the UK debates the future of oil and gas development? Well, I think the stakes couldn't really be any higher. I mean, we've just had a huge debate at the latest UN Climate Summit in December in Dubai, where whether or not we keep fossil fuels like oil and gas in the ground were really at the heart of the discussion. And governments ultimately agreed that we've got to transition away from fossil fuels. And the implication of that is that we've got to leave oil and gas in the ground, which is also what we've been hearing countless times from energy experts and climate scientists like the International Energy Agency, if, we've, if we're going to have any real shot at staying uh, below 1.5 degrees of warming, that critical threshold for a safe climate. And the fact that the UK, a country that um, not only hosted COP, the UN Climate Summit, a couple of years ago and has widely been considered to be a climate leader, but is also one of the world's biggest economies. It has significant historical responsibility for climate change, given that it was the home of the Industrial Revolution that kicked it all off. The fact that the UK could be considering approving a massive new oil and gas project in 2023, I think, sends such a damaging signal internationally to all of the other governments that are considering doing something similar. We've got to have more leadership from countries like the UK. All right. Well, then let's zoom in on that project, the Rosebank oil and gas field off the coast of Scotland. Help me understand uh, particularly what developing it would mean for global emissions. Well, Rosebank is the largest undeveloped oil and gas field in the UK, um, and it involves extracting over the course of its lifetime about half a billion barrels of oil. So it is a massive oil and gas project. Um, Burning all of Rosebank's oil and gas would create the same volume of emissions that the 28 poorest countries in the world create on an annual basis. So it's, you know, way above and beyond what would be any fair share of emissions from the UK. Um, And not only that, but it's in an area of the North Atlantic um, that overlaps with a marine protected area and would put a gas pipeline through that area. So it's also going to have really damaging local environmental impacts as well as really considerable climate impacts. And who stands to profit from its development? Well, the oil and gas companies that are pushing it ahead, namely Equinor, which is the Norwegian state-owned oil and gas company, um, and Ithaca Energy, which is the other developer involved, they're the ones that not only stand to benefit from the profits of you know, an oil and gas field at a time that oil and gas prices are particularly high. And I believe there's also a Canadian involvement through Suncor, um, which is also involved in the oil sands in Alberta. Yeah, that's right. So Suncor is also one of the organisations or one of the companies that's involved that has a a, a more minor stake. But, you know, these are really companies that um, Equinor, for example, is also responsible for some very controversial proposed developments globally. I mean, these really aren't oil and gas companies that um, are in any way aligning themselves with a safe climate. Now, your organisation, Uplift UK, along with Greenpeace UK, Um, have filed a lawsuit over the approval of Rosebank. What's the case that you're making? Well, the case that we're making is, in short, that the environmental impacts, both the climate change impacts 
and the local environmental impacts and the way that this decision was made by the UK government to approve the Rosebank oil field make it unlawful as a decision. The science is crystal clear at this stage that if we're going to stay within 1.5 degrees of warming, which is what the UK government has repeatedly endorsed, not just at the international level, but you know we've enshrined a net zero target in law for 2050 that's based on that aspiration to stay within 1.5 degrees of warming. Um, we know that we can't have new oil and gas developments. The International Energy Agency, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and countless others have made that clear. So we think that that's a very strong ground on which to say that this is a decision that can't be lawful. Now, we asked the UK government for a response and we haven't heard back yet, but but um, the government told the Guardian newspaper, and this is a quote, the UK is a world leader in reaching net zero, cutting emissions faster than any other major economy. And as the Independent Climate Change Committee recognizes, we will still need oil and gas as part of our energy mix. We'll continue to back the UK's oil and gas industry, which underpins our energy security, supports up to 200,000 jobs, and will provide around 50 billion pounds in tax revenue over the next five years, helping fund our transition to net zero. Tezacon, what's your response to that? Well, I imagine you're familiar with some of those arguments in Canada. Um, but look, in short, I think there are so many ways in which that's a disingenuous response. The first thing to say is that the UK government's uh, climate change advisors, the Independent Climate Change Committee, have actually explicitly said that just because we're going to need some gas in 2050 certainly doesn't justify new fossil fuel infrastructure and that new fossil fuel infrastructure isn't compatible with staying within 1.5 degrees. There's that. Um, the other thing is that the UK actually exports 80% of the oil that it produces and, and the same thing will happen with Rosebank's oil. It'll end up being sold on the international market and likely end up being bought by a European consumer. So it really doesn't do anything to support the UK's energy security. Um, and the other thing I'd say is that, yes, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are employed by directly or indirectly by the oil and gas industry at the moment. But the UK is also blessed with some of the best renewable resources in Europe. Um, and that is where we know that the jobs that will be sustainable for many decades to come are located and it's where the oil and gas industry workforce knows that it has to move and it's really up to the government now to support that move instead of doubling down on an industry that's in terminal decline. All right, so the court case is, is just beginning. It's something that may take some time to resolve. And meanwhile, there are hundreds of oil and gas fields in the North Sea. What will you be watching for next as the government prepares to vote on this legislation and how to license them? Well, we are watching that legislation very closely and we expect that before the election in the UK, the general election that we're expecting um, by the end of the year, the government is going to continue using oil and gas policy as a political football. So we expect that Rosebank won't be the last oil and gas field that it tries to rush through before a likely change in government. And if there is a change in government, we know that the opposition party um, have said that they actually wouldn't approve new oil and gas licences. So there's a lot on the line for the oil and gas industry and the government as a supporter of that industry in general, I think is going to do what it can to to ensure that it, it has business interests protected for years to come. So we'll be doing everything we can to hold it accountable over that. Tessa Khan, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by Vivian Luck, Danielle Piper, 
Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.